Shachtan, an Indo Askelige. Time in Mon Irok the Yen of Chacht Erachor, Agasuligum, a Makan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestian Echo. Vien Talam again Omgrev, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. Yeah, having my head shoved into the uh, steps of the Ulster Bank in Ranla, called but of a gun put into the back of your skull, that's a moment where you go, okay, yeah, I think this one's up. How does a high-flying academic become one of Ireland's most prolific bank robbers? What I would see is the most important part of this still lies open. I'm Not Here to Hurt You, a brand new series from the award-winning team behind the Indo Daily. That November day, that's where it all, all begins. Out now, wherever you get your podcasts. A few years ago, an ambitious young entrepreneur made a big claim. She was developing technology that could diagnose illnesses from a single drop of blood. Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos dazzled investors with her pitch, dressing up like Steve Jobs and talking up a perfect game. As we now know, there was no groundbreaking technology. Holmes, who was faking it rather than making it, has now been convicted on several counts of fraud. But the episode, which captured the imagination of the world, has shone a spotlight on the darker side of some startups' ethics. How far can you stretch your startup's claims of potential when looking for money? And is it okay to fake it until you make it? Well, joining me today to discuss all of this is the entrepreneur and startup veteran, Donal Cahillan, known to everybody in startup world as DC. DC, you're welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Adrian. Did you follow the Therano story? Oh, did I watch? I mean, I mean, honestly, even before, you know, Netflix optioned the book or the story or any of that sort of stuff, I, I, I was fascinated by it. And I think, I think most of people who are close to startups like we're looking, you know, at this amazing company in the US, you know, raising ridiculous sums of money. And actually, yeah, there was the whole like, you know, I mean, it was she was such a strong media figure. You know, is is this the first female Steve Jobs? The the imagery, the magazine covers. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think you'd be hard pressed to find start, you know, much many people working in startups who don't know some or all of the Theranos story. I, I can tell you from a journalist's perspective, it was irresistible. I never wrote about it, but I can see the appeal. She said all the right things. She looked the part. She she was a woman as well, which, look, everything aside, was great to see um, a female entrepreneur. She did all the right things and she looked the part. Yeah, she was, you know what? And actually somebody said to me recently, and, and it, even in, in some of the reporting, the books and stuff that have been written, there's this kind of claim that actually even her voice she was altering because she has this very unique dull tone. And actually, you know, it wasn't just Steve Jobs, but there was a whole kind of a that uh, that uncomfortableness that Mark Zuckerberg always seems to portray. It was kind of the almost again like the female version of that. So as you said, like ticked all the boxes yeah. as a kind of a media figure. 
Just just on Zook, it's not just that he portrays it in the media. I've met him and he is oh, yeah. absolutely like that in person. He walks into the room when he talks to you. He is very, very robotic. He's very stiff. He looks uncomfortable the whole time. If you ask him a left field question, he looks, he rolls his eyes a bit. He looks like he's computing. Anyway, we're way off the point. Um, to get back to uh, Theranos. So I guess there is this question now, and we're going to talk about it for the next few minutes. To what degree do startups need to fake it until they make it? And what are the guardrails there? Yeah. Well, I guess, look, the, the very, very first thing you would have to say is the real problem in this case was um, that this was a healthcare startup. So, I mean, you know, when, when you look at the walls of, of Facebook's Palo Alto offices and you see, you know, move fast and break things and all these kind of traditional... They've taken that down now, actually, but yeah, I, I take yeah. your point. Yeah. All these traditional startup ways of thinking, you know, ask for forgiveness, not for permission. That's one thing if you're if you're building a to-do app or you're building, you know, tin, Tinder for dogs or something like that. But if you're dealing with healthcare, like you, you can't live in that ethos, you know. And and I think one of the like one of the biggest that you're 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 100 right in identifying that like there is this culture in startups of we'll we we'll be polite and say exaggeration. And then it, it, the question is on a scale of exaggeration to pure and utter damn lies. What, where is the comfort point? I guess the first thing you look at is, why does it happen? And I guess the reality is, is for many startups, it happens because they're pre-revenue, they have a wacky idea that nobody's ever done before, and, you know, they're trying to convince, you know, investors of the value of their proposition, when, when in a lot of cases, they, they don't have, like, they're going with a gut feeling and, and they don't have practical evidence to prove it. So, so we call it, there is massaging of the truth. You know, oh, we have this person, you know, we've committed, this person has committed as a customer when maybe, you know, they've sent an email saying, hey, we like your product. Mm. So, I mean, there's a very, the, the one thing though that I think, and, and it's a thing that I think American startups realize and Irish startups maybe don't, is here's the difference. I mean, if I meet, if I'm being interviewed by Adrian Rexler, the journalist, and I say, oh, we have 50,000 customers and we only have 35,000 customers. Look, Adrian will eventually find out because he's good at that stuff and like he'll be annoyed at us. The difference is if you make that claim to an investor, you've just committed securities fraud. And I think because, you know, maybe Ireland in particular, like we, we look at American founders and we see these big boisterous characters making big, brave claims and stuff. But like your average American founder, I've always said, is very much more like financially and uh, legally kind of savvy. And I think it's because, you know, the American culture having to do your own tax return, that sort of stuff. I think, I think we imitate in Ireland without realizing the, that there's very serious business consequences to, you know, like telling absolute fibs. And, and, and sadly, I've, I've come across cases in the past. I've been lucky enough, you know, look, I've worked, for, I've worked in marketing for two very high-profile startups in Ireland, Trusted.com, Teamwork. I would say, look, we were very high profile. Did we ever tell lies? Absolutely not. Did did we always try and maximize, you know, media interest and media value? 
by being kind of like loud about our achievements? Absolutely. But like, did we ever cross the line? Absolutely never. So where is the line? Where is the boundary? I mean, you mentioned, for example, a kind of a soft misrepresentation of claiming that you might have a customer when somebody just emailed you to tell you they liked your service. I have yeah. many times spoken with um, startups who have made claims uh, of, of involvement of certain high profile figures who aren't yet involved, but the gamble is that by the time, you know, the person yeah. they're trying to persuade comes on board with these fibs, that they will then go to the original person and say, well, actually, we've landed person B on and you should come on board. And they're hoping that it will all work out. Like, there's a lot of that sort of stuff, isn't there? There is. Actually, I, honestly, I, I had the conversation at the weekend with, with, a, with a young founder because I had heard through the grapevine, you know, uh, uh, somebody actually we would both know who does a lot of angel investing. And another investor came to me and said, oh, I'm thinking about investing in that young fella there because I heard such a person's already put money in. And I was kind of going like, I, I know for a fact that other person has not put money in. And as you said, it's this whole like, somehow the perception is like, did, did they not think that all these people talk, you know, mm. and, and, and information does flow. But it is, um, isn't that the it, gamble? It, it is, aren't they? Aren't they supposed to be reaching gamble. for the moon? Yeah, and I, I mean, look, the one thing I would say is, I find like I actually was talking to somebody about this the other day because obviously, as I said, everybody is talking about the Elizabeth Holmes example. Like, there's a challenge in Ireland in particular because you know you we we do have a very small like we have a very small investor community. I think a lot of startups forget maybe that that's then as a consequence is very tight. You know, if if somebody's trying to um, if a startup in Cork is trying to raise money, there's a pretty good chance that whoever they're trying to raise money from will give me a call at some stage to say, what's the story with the lads? Um, the, the challenge, I think, is that, you know, a lot, we, 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 we have some very good investors. Then we have a lot of investors who maybe are not used to investing in high-risk, high-return startups. Mm -hmm. So therefore, you know, like in, in Silicon Valley, you know yourself, you go out to a bar at night and probably raise £50,000 on, on an angel investment based on your idea because, because the investors are investing in as many startups as possible, hoping that one of them pays off. Mm -hmm. I think where it gets challenging in Ireland is, is, you know, the investors aren't maybe as educated in terms of investing in these high-risk propositions. So they're looking for an awful lot of very exacting detail. And the startup kind of doesn't understand the importance that well with this particular type of investor and you have to be like rigorously honest because they're not mm. they they need you to win not you know you to be one of many investments they've made i mean to some extent though it has always occurred to me in covering this sector that it is expected that you go in not only with your biggest pitch but also with an outsized best case you know if we win the euro millions type of pitch i mean for example when covering um, the difference between venture capital investment to male and female founders and the reason why there's such a disparity to this day in 2022 between what a typical uh, seed round or, or even a Series A for um, a female-led company compared to a male-led company will be, especially for the seed rounds, one of the key differences that VCs tell me privately is that the claims and the the bravado and the bragging and the propensity for the male founder 
to, you know, just throw caution to the wind and say, this is what we're going to do and we're going to land on Mars and we're going to do it. It's far more common than with a female founder who might rein it in much more, be much more conservative in the pitch. So, and it's finding the balance there. Like there's a tension there between being sort of cautious and respectable and conservative and just kind of not lying, but exaggerating to a wild extent. Yeah. Like, the, I mean, you would imagine the logic of it is, is that, you know, an investor should be looking going, where is my money safer? And mm-hmm. you'd be saying like, as, as sadly, we all know, ten, nine times out of 10, the money is always safer with the ladies than the lads, you know, mm-hmm. but yeah. like the, the challenge is, is, you know, like in, in, in particular, when we're talking about, you know, innovation driven enterprise, as you said, the moonshots, the, the doing stuff that's never been done before startups. The reality is, as you know, that that like an investor is making multiple bets and therefore they're comfortable to a certain degree with, you know, a certain amount of this, this bravado. But mm. as you said, like it's I mean, like the one thing is, is you only have to look at the consequences when you get it wrong. Like, I mean, in a community like Ireland, if if a startup is caught out in a lie, like that startup, that that lie follows that startup forever, if you know what I mean, and follows those founders forever. And like, you know, the idea in, in, in a Silicon Valley and an ideal startup ecosystem is, God, you know, if you fail once, so long as you showed the effort and showed the thing, you shouldn't be allowed a second chance. I right. mean, I think yeah, startups we- fail to realize that that gets like, honestly, I know investors who invest in people purely based on the transparency of information that they know that even if this thing is going completely down the, the, the toilet, the founders will be very clear to the investors, look, this is going badly. We mm. need your help versus constant updates saying it's going well. We think we're going to sign this guy. We need another week. We need another week. We need another week. Oh, by the way, there's no money in the bank account. Company's over. Yeah. Look, you've been around the scene for a long time. You must have come across some interesting examples of, you know, exaggerations or faking it till you make it. Yeah. I mean, Actually, one of the one of the ones that you kind of come across an awful lot is the whole, um, you know, hi, we're trying to raise money. We have a load of American investors interested, right? So they're going out to Irish people looking to raise money, and the claim is, you know, that in these in, that that somehow Irish people should be pressured to invest because these off these American investors. And like the reality is, is as we all know, on a boring accounting side of things. You know, for Americans to invest in an Irish company, you got to have an American registered entity. Like a lot of early stage startups kind of use the the lie, frankly, that they've got a lot of overseas interest to somehow try and press gang Irish investors into it. And I, I've seen that like very, very regularly. What's, what's... Whereas anybody who knows their, anybody who knows anything about startups knows the comp- the complexity of you know, American companies putting money into an Irish company, you know? Yeah, I don't want to put you on the spot. What's the worst yeah. you've ever heard? The worst I've ever heard was, and I won't say which of them, but one of the two big startups I worked with, I once met another startup that didn't realize I worked for the company. And they told me that like one of our customers were one of their customers, if you know what I mean. Mm. <laughs> so like we were, I was being told, oh yeah, we these guys on board, they didn't like the last company they were working with. And I'm sitting there going, well, actually, like kind of in my head, I was going, well, I'm the one who closed that particular deal. I know they're very happy, but they kind of, they, 
I guess they didn't put two to two, two together between like I was helping out at a startup event. They didn't realize what my day job was. And it, honestly, the other the other thing, and I'm sure you've seen this a million times, Adrian, is, you know, you do your research, you're interviewing a startup, you do your research, you go onto their website and it's like you've all these company logos. You know, we work with Google, we work with Netflix, we work with Facebook. And, you know, somehow there's this implication that, you know, they've got this giant global level deal with Google where, in fact, it's, you know, like somebody with a Facebook.com email address once signed up for their consumer product to manage their gardening at home and now they're claiming you know that they're trying to you see that trying the, to live off the image that facebook yeah. is the customer or something the thing about all of this is that the ethics are elastic here i mean there's a prominent founder who i won't name who who many of our listeners would know and he's, he's a successful entrepreneur now and in his early days he had one or two businesses and he used to make wild claims about the customers he had or the customers he was in the verge of landing and for the most part they were minor players in their industry or they were kind of clapped and even the technology that he was claiming was uh you know w- was groundbreaking was kind of recycled technology but the the general consensus was that he was a bit of a lovable rogue you know and that he wasn't really <laughs> oh, yeah, sort yeah. of you know defrauding any he sort of really yeah. wasn't but um and then you look across the water and you see people like Elon Musk and you know how do you judge a guy like that here's a guy who found SpaceX who would have thought that his claims were realistic when he was starting that who thinks his claims now about landing on Mars are that realistic yeah. so it's a kind of a difficult one sometimes to try and parse and to separate black from white on isn't it it is very much and I think it, you know it's important that we kind of we're distinguishing you know that in in that it is you know we are talking about say like the difference between I suppose I mean is there a difference between business ethics and startup ethics mm. I mean the the biggest differentiating factor is you know the behavior that maybe you know you would get away with if you were a traditional business a traditional SME like there are so many more knowns you know you're pitching something that people understand they can make a value basis on you know, it's this whole thing again, like when it comes back to startup fundraising, how do you put a valuation on a company that has no money in the bank account type stuff? I think the challenge is, is yeah, like it's that whole thing of, I mean, you know, you look at the Elizabeth Holmes case and you kind of go like, if what she was claiming worked, mm. like the company was worth, you know, incredible amounts of money. The problem was, was like, it didn't. And actually like one of the interesting things I think is the fact that, you know, there's a lot of this being used as a kind of a, I won't say a stick to beat Silicon Valley on, but there's a lot of people talking about like, well, this is a prime example when Silicon Valley goes wrong. Like there were no Silicon Valley investors invested in Theranos. It was, again, it was almost the other side of the equation, which was, you know, a lot of it appears to be people who almost feel like that they missed the Silicon Valley cash cow, you know, private family funds. Well, it was and, companies like Walgreens and... Yeah, individual yeah. investors and, and all this sort of stuff. And that, you know, because because the way that it was told was, you know, if you had if you had walked in as Theranos into Sequoia or Benchmark Capital or these sort of guys, they are well used to judging moonshots mm. and they're well used to judging. And in most cases, as you well know, they kind of judge a lot of the early success based on their impressions of the founding people and the founding team and whether or not they are you know, kind of ethical, whether they feel they're going to be honest about stuff and that sort of stuff. And that's that's the one factor that's missing from this whole Elizabeth Holmes story was that kind of, you know, I think even in her own head, 
she kind of believed once she said something more than once, you know, that somehow that was true, you know, once or twice she mentioned that she had contracts with the U S military. And suddenly the, the light turned into, we've got machines on helicopter gunships, you know, in Iraq. It's one of the most fascinating things about the Elizabeth, Elizabeth Holmes story is even now she doesn't really accept that, you know, she was essentially telling falsehoods a lot of the yeah. time. She doesn't really accept that the technology, you know, wasn't really anything like what what she was claiming it was. It, it's kind of a compel. It's almost like a psychosis. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I know. Well, maybe I know, that's you what know, you need. That's maybe that's what yeah. you need to be in a start. I've, I've heard it. Many I mean, times. I mean, I suppose it is that thing. Like people would kind of say it's almost like you know, you look at so many, so many startups. You kind of, you kind of, kind of go, God, even. Even your even your mother must think at this stage now that you're crazy, you know, that this it's this blind belief, you know, that that you are going to make it, that your startup is going to be the one that will get there. But like the, the reality is, is I, I mean, it's it's funny actually. I, I was talking to the guys in um in Dogpatch here the last few days in on the NDRC, and I asked them, like, how do you pick the startups that you bring into the program just for anyone who doesn't know dog patch labs in dublin uh which is a a kind of an accelerator not accelerator it's it's a a co-working space space Um, they run they run ndrc which is the the irish government's national startup accelerator but i thought one interesting thing to say adrian was that their main one of the main characteristics that they look for is that the founders are coachable and good communicators that like they kind of feel like there's no problem that a startup can't solve if they're willing to listen to other people, be good communicators and be coachable. And I think the challenge that we're talking about here is when you have blind faith, blind belief and the ego that says I'm right and everybody else is wrong. You know? mm. Interesting you mentioned those traits. One thing I have been struck by a couple of the startups in there in Dogpatch and others as well that tend to go on to be successful is they are often the most openly interested and curious people uh, that you'll meet. I met John Collison, uh, Stripes John Collison, last week, interviewed him for the Sunday Independent. He was in the University of Limerick, but one of the things that struck me about him, it always strikes me when I meet either of the two Collison brothers, there are three Collison brothers, but the, the two that founded Stripe, yeah, yeah. was is um, how interested and curious they are about even small things around them. John looking around, he would go and he'd look at something, he'd... A student would come up to him uh, and ask him about something and he would end up asking the student about what they're doing and not out of politeness, not like a diplomat. He's actually genuinely interested. It's this open mindset. It's kind of fascinating. It is. It's funny you mentioned that now. I was talking to, uh, as I call him, young Tom McCarthy, who's the the founder of Patch, who, who was involved in that event down in, in Limerick that John was present at. And he said, you know, he was looking forward to kind of meeting John Collison and all that stuff. Mm. And he said the first thing John said to him when he came up was, would it be okay if I spent some time, you know, with the participants, with the teams? And like, apparently John, as you, as you probably saw yourself being there, John sat down and, and was probably far more interested in talking to them. I would sadly say that maybe talking to the media or talking to, you know, various dignitaries yeah. from University of Limerick and all that sort of stuff. Absolutely, yeah. You're dead right. I mean, that that curiosity, to me, you know, that's always an incredible sign. And I mean, there is, to a certain degree too, sometimes it's almost this... this this kind of quietness and naivety, but like they are the people I think 
who usually succeed with the moonshots uh, and that sort of stuff. Yeah, you I mean, know, with the Collisons that you would, you would almost say was a structured moonshot, it was a moonshot and reforming and disrupting the, the global payments industry and making it easier for shops to accept payments. But on the other hand, it was so structured and so uh, methodical. And you're right about, um, I mean, John Collison is the one I've met most over the last couple of years but he doesn't really need to do media interviews he doesn't need to sit down with me and you know for a you know a, a long interview in the sunday independent which which we did in which i'll ask him about stuff he probably doesn't really want to talk about like you know the housing situation and the difficulty yeah, yeah, getting yeah. work fees and things like that it's it's he is actually more interested in in talking to uh in learning stuff himself and he's not earning anything from me let's face it um, but that mindset that we talk about, I'm just wondering where that ends and the propensity to try and, you know, push yourself out of your comfort zone with regard to the claims of what your your startup can do, where that starts or whether it's it's all a big kind of gray area and it's just always going to be difficult to draw a line. I think I think one of the um, I think, Adrian, one of, like, actually, it's funny. I think one of the one of the telltale signs. And you, again, in the Theranos version, like if you read any of the books, you read anything, so you, you, the movie that's starring Jennifer Lawrence that's coming out now later, I'm sure most people, this will that'll be then, everybody will know about everything. Well, like, she has the voice, she's the, quite a deep voice. Jennifer it was the Lawrence. closed off culture within even the company, where information was hidden within the company. So I'd imagine, you know, the exaggeration was going in at every level of the company. Hmm. I think you'll agree, like, if you meet, you know, you'll know, like, you'll learn more from a, a startup by talking to, say, somebody who works in the startup, because you'll realize, well, like, what sort of environment are the founders? Are they are the founders here building a company to solve a problem, or are they kind of building a money machine for them that they really don't give a damn about their staff? And I, I've always noticed that, that the ones where the staff seem as excited about solving the problem they're usually the ones then that like they have these transparent organizations that like where, where where it comes out on top and you don't have like these founders controlling information up top. So like I'd be fascinated. I mean, you know, from your perspective as a journalist, it must be that thing really of when when you decide when you ask to interview somebody and, you know, they come on the call and sitting beside them is the PR person. I mean, that must that must instantly say, well, actually, what I'm going to get here is probably very rehearsed and prepared. Do you know, the funny thing about there. that is that can work two ways. In some instances, it's that the person you're interviewing is nervous and they're not sure, you know, whether they're saying the right thing. In other cases, it's that the PR person or their company has given the startup outsized claims about their importance and their influence. And they've convinced the startup person that it's crucial that they should be there so that everything runs according. So that runs smoothly. Yeah. That is quite common as well. And then in a third scenario, sometimes it's that a PR person may genuinely add some context or be able to contribute to the conversation. That's quite rare. It's not that it's rare that the PR person would add, would add would be able to add comments, but it's rare that they would be needed to do that yeah. in the moment or at the time. So yeah, yeah. I suppose you, I'd imagine it, it. Like when I think about it, I also think of you know, like let's call a spade a spade. You know, fifteen years ago, where the majority of company founders were coming from, you know, business backgrounds, commerce degrees, and all that sort of stuff, and therefore you know, always had these kind of strong 
selling skills, strong personality skills and all that stuff. Whereas like now, you know, we're entering that environment where so many of the founders are coming from technical backgrounds, you know, like myself, they're a bit, you know, introverted. They're a bit less comfortable with the communication side of things. Like, you see, I rarely then find those sort of companies making exaggerated claims. Like, like honestly, when I worked for um, Peter Coppinger and Dan Mackey in teamwork, there were times where I was kind of going, lads, that's probably maybe a little bit too honest. But I mean, that was that's the thing. That's a great you know, company. Teamwork the, is a great the company. Honesty, yeah. the transparency. Mm. They want, like, you walk in, you walk into Teamwork's headquarters for many, many years, and, you know, the monthly sales figures were up on the screen in reception, yep. you know, and, yep. and signups and all that. And I mean, you know, it's that technical mindset that says, you know, everything is binary, everything is black or white, whereas maybe, you know, people who come from a more traditional sales background, they're always been told like, you know, upsell, you know, make it sound more yeah. exciting, make keep, it this. Keep it, keep it and, you know, keep it hidden. The one thing about teamwork that you're absolutely right about teamwork, by the way, it, they set the tone. The minute you walk in the door, they have their current sales figures up on a big board for everybody to see visitors and staff alike. And I have to say, it's incredibly impressive. It sets an incredibly confident tone. If I were an investor, that's exactly the kind of thing um, I'd be interested in. DC, I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about startups, yeah. but I think we're, we've kind of run out of time here. So um, I will thank you profusely for coming on and giving us the benefit more of fun. your uh, experience and your erudite thoughts, entrepreneur and startup veteran, Donal Callan. And uh, that is all we have time for this week for me, Adrian Weckler, the tech editor of the Irish and Sunday Independent. So I'll talk to you same time next week. Bye-bye. Thank you.